Welcome back to Jesus Speaks Farsi. After a year of sharing stories of the church in Iran, we thought we'd take a moment to share something a little different. In this season of Jesus Speaks Farsi, we'll be talking to friends whose lives have been deeply impacted and shaped by the story of Iran's church, even though they're all from the West. Our hope is that in hearing their stories on how they've become involved, your imagination might also be stirred for ways the Lord might have you become more deeply connected to what God is doing in the Iran region and beyond. Through these conversations, we'll hear about the vital roles that prayer and giving can have in participating in this story. The Iranian church has responded in extraordinary moments of great pressure or sadness or um, unknown. Um, and that their first response has been pressing into prayer. You know, I can't speak Farsi. I can't go to Iran and be a church planter there. That's not my part to play, but there is a part I can play. I think that's what giving is. It's a way of playing your part. We'll also talk with those on the front lines of ministry, both at home and abroad. I went and lived in an area of Karachi, and it was hard because I was just completely uh, alone there, and it wasn't a particularly easy place. But but then when you do obey, uh, interesting stuff happens. There's this tendency, I think, in all of us that when you see somebody different, you tend to turn and walk away from them. But I think this is a moment in our in our generation and in this time of history that God is saying, when you see somebody different, turn and walk towards them meet them get to know them you know see what their needs are see how you can you can be a friend to them today joe and jennifer talk with our friend and colleague also an author and teacher tom hawksley a brit who spent his adult life in ministry primarily with the iranian church tom shares about his time as a full-time missionary learning farsi in a remote village he shares what it was like to fall in love with his iranian wife moisha and what mark 16:15 means when jesus says to go and tell Tom is a fascinating speaker, and we know you'll enjoy this lively conversation with him today. One additional note, we wanted to mention that Tom's work with Operation Mobilization, which he mentions in this episode and is ultimately coming to faith, were significantly impacted by the work of George Burwer, founder of OM. George Burwer passed away last month, and we wanted to take a moment to remember him and his lifetime of faithful service to the gospel. We're glad you're here with us today. Let's get started. So, Tom, thank you for being with us on Jesus it's Speaks Farsi. Great to be with you, Joe and Jenny. Yeah. And Jenny's here as well. Yes. Jen's here. Jen's here as well. So we've got two Brits and a farm girl from Georgia. We Quite should have a, a great conversation mm-hmm. today. So, Tom, I wanted to start. Just tell us, you know, a bit of your story growing up in England and then what led you to go on mission and what that looked like for you as a Christian uh, when you first started doing that. So, uh, well, I, I wasn't really, I wasn't a Christian, I mean, uh, to begin with at all. And the idea of mission would have just been completely wacky. Um, but I became a Christian when I was 19. So um, and I became a Christian with a group called Operation Mobilization. Were you at university when no, this, you were just... I was between university. Okay. And I had nine months between doing this exam, special exam to get into the university and going to the university. 
and uh, this this friend who was a girl, not a girlfriend. Yeah. Only the confusion. <laughs> a friend who was a girl. She. This was in the middle of the summer, and I'm a 1970s guy. You know, my hair is down. So to tell my... us about 19 year old Tom. What kind of things were well, you into? Well, my hair was down to here, Joe. <laughs> I was a David Bowie fan. Do you say yeah. Bowie or Bowie? Georgie, Bowie. you Bowie, Bowie or Bowie? Bowie. You're Bowie. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm also Bowie. Some okay. people go Bowie, Bowie, you know. Yeah. Anyway, tomato, tomato. So it was, I was a David Bowie fan and I was, um, I was a normal English guy, Joe. I mean, you know. Uh, this, I do know what know, normal I mean, English I mean, guys. did you smoke? Did I smoke? Oh, you're a football. You didn't smoke. Well, I, 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 I smoke and drank a bit in the off drunk season. You ever smoke weed? A little bit. <laughs> oh, gosh. Don't yeah, tell my mum. Uh, it's you, funny, I'll tell you a funny story. My mum, when I first became a Christian... Did you smoke weed, Jim? Lord, no. <laughs> Where's this podcast gone? This is supposed to be Jesus Speaks Farsi, not Tom Smokes Weed. All right. So you brought the subject down. You a, said 1970s. Okay, I've got a quick... When I became a Christian, I my mum... Confession time. Yeah, my mum and dad were, were pretty upset at first. It was a big shock to them. And my mum said, I'm just glad you're telling me you've never done drugs. And I said, well, you know, being actually mum, <laughs> oh. smoked a little. Just so you were... No, I wasn't. It, no, not, not heavy not heavy at all. Just but, but recreational. Usual, yeah, no, not hot, you know, just just usual uh, you know, smoking, drinking, yeah. you know, rock and roll. You know, you know what? I, I was a 1970s guy. I wouldn't say... But basically, I was very cynical. Because yeah. my parents had split up when I was ten, okay. and you know, uh, do you say darling in Georgia? Do you know? Do Americans darling. say darling this and darling that? You know, in nineteen, you know, the, in, oh darling this and darling that and all of that. Well, I thought, so oh, this is darling, or this is just darling nonsense, because you know they they because they, they split up. So I was um, I was very cynical as a teenager. And I always believed God existed, and I had come across Christians. Uh, but the to, to cut a long story short, how I came to the Christian faith, I should never have become a Christian. I was not, you know, it just it's just totally weird being a Christian because it wasn't uh, how it happened. Isn't was, that how it always happens, though? Yeah, thank you. Okay, <laughs> thank you. It's to totally weird that we're here. Right? <laughs> it is weird. <laughs> so uh, I had another friend who was a girlfriend. And um, she dumped me, but but she then she um, wrote me letters saying that you know it was nice letters actually, but she said she was praying for me. She'd obviously I think she'd had a Christian faith, she'd lost the Christian faith when she met me, or she backslid and then she went back, and she was praying for me. So this she was praying for me, and then another friend who was a girl. She not came, a girlfriend. Not a girlfriend. Thank okay. you. She came and saw me. She was a bit posh, and it's the summer of seventy six. And she's a bit posh, and she comes. For all our American listeners, posh is upper class. They fancy. speak very good, fancy. Yeah, 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 yeah. She was pure Holy Trinity Brompton. Now they're the people <laughs> who give out the Alpha course. You know, Kensington, West London. You know, they never send the Americans to East London. Yeah. You'd have been to, anyway. I mean, <laughs> so this posh lady, her name was Claire Houston. She comes to see me, and I, I, I can still remember the afternoon. She says, "Tom, the Lord has told me to give you my tithe." Well, this tithe? Is tithe. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you understand it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I didn't understand. You'd what, not known tithe before. What's, she talking about? what's this the Lord's told you to do anything? You know, when you're telling God yeah. sort of just talks to you, Claire, what's going on here? So, my mind is just going a little bit, you know, what's going on? And, um, but she is offering me 150 pounds. Now, 150 pounds now would barely buy you a chocolate bar but back then in 1976 150 pounds was a serious amount of money 
And she said, um, the Lord's told me to give this money to you, except you've got to travel. So I said, fine, great, give me the money. You know, I, you know, the Lord's told you, the Lord's not told you, that's not my problem, give me the money, I'll take it. So I took the 150 pounds and I had to travel. But I, you know, in my heart, I knew something was going on. So you were honest enough to know I'm going to take this money and I'm going to do I'm with going to travel, yeah. yeah. I was going to keep the conditions. So I wrote to loads of organizations. I had about nine months between school and university. And only one organization really came back offering me something. It was called Operation Mobilization. Started by a wonderful man called George Verwer. Some of your listeners might uh, know of him. They have two ships, Logos, two Logos. Operation Mobilization, fantastic Christian organization. But for me, as an... 18-year-old receiving their literature, my blood literally froze. I read this stuff, soldier for a summer or for a life. Thousands of people are going to hell. What are you going to do about it? I just yeah. looked well, at it and think, oh boy, the, the, these, these guys, they're really, you know, they're, they're jumping off the cliff here. I mean, not quite, but I had a very good friend, a guy called Paul Bender Samuel, um, who's, uh, who's a solid Christian. He said, Tom, they're a good group, go with them. So I knew... I knew that here I had an opportunity to see whether Christianity was true. I thought actually probably Christianity was nice, but not true. Here I had an opportunity of thinking, okay, let's see if people actually walk the talk. So I ended up not as a Christian going on an operation. But you said you believed in, in a I God. Believed, I believed in God. I be, I'd ask Christ. When I was about 13 years old, mm -hmm. I was frightened of dying. So I'd always ask Jesus into my heart before I slept because I was frightened I'd die and go to hell. But... So morning. you had been to church as a child? Oh, yeah. Our school is chapel every day. Okay, it okay, okay. Mm -hmm. yeah, 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 it was that type of school. Um, but um, I never repented. My problem was I never, I, I never repented. So where, uh, did, where did you go with school? Operation World? No, well, it was in a place called Vossena, which is near Den Haag in Holland. And they were. And so I arrive at this place. I'm not a Christian. I'm completely freaked out. So first, you went on your first mission <laughs> trip. Not as a Christian. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You okay. get it right. And they yeah. were fine for you to tag along, even. Well, they didn't. They didn't. Work, they hadn't worked it out. They just thought I was a bit, bit sort of, you know. So I had, I had two roll, roll ups. Yeah, roll, yeah. I had, I had two. I had some two roll up, roll ups, roll up for know, cigarettes. Cigarettes like, that you roll yeah, up. I had two yeah. roll ups. So I arrived there. And I realized nobody's smoking. <laughs> nobody's smoking. What am I going to do? So I think, oh, I'd sort of been wanting to give up. So I thought this was a good opportunity, but um. It's really, it's really strange. And there was a spiritual battle going on. I can still, I used to go outside and actually enjoy swearing because I couldn't swear inside with all these nice Christians around yeah. me. So I go outside. I, I just felt something really nasty inside me, not like, wanting to get me away from there. Um, and uh, but I stayed, and um, they, I think they had sort of twigs. So one guy says, one of them he says, so this is how you should prepare your testimony. So. At the end of the, I said, I said, his name is Yope, Yope's treatment. He, he led the work for OM in Holland for many years, lovely guy. I said, Yope, what if you don't have a testimony? And he looked at me and he couldn't work out why. He said, oh, what you mean is your testimony is not very exciting. And I thought to myself, no, 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 <laughs> it's much worse than that. I don't have a testimony. Anyway, it was there um, the preaching and the love i saw these guys were walking the talk yeah i saw they were walking the talk they were absolutely serious and absolutely serious about mission how long were you there for until you had this moment where you i was there about two weeks wow. or so i then i went on to a park bench in vasana yeah. and i gave my whole life to christ i could com it was complete and it just surrender. clicked no it didn't just click i wish it just clicked it yeah. was just it was just i knew i i had to give 
all of my life to Jesus, I had to repent. I and and I I hang I hanged on to that verse. I will come in. You know, he's promised to yeah, come in. Yeah. And then one of the guys there, he started doing the navigators with me, which is sort of like Safar now, but navigators. And he would sit me down. And so do a discipleship course. He discipled me. Oh, they discipled me. They would. There was a prayer meeting for two hours every morning. They were praying for a ship. So if you if you're an outsider to Christianity yeah. and you come to a group of people and you say, "Well, what are you praying for this morning?" They said, well, "We're actually praying for a ship." They were. They were literally praying. A ship. A ship. They had a ship called the Logos, which was going around the world. This is in 1977. And they were praying for another ship. And they got the money for the ship and they brought it. It was called the Dulos. And all the people that I was with, mm -hmm. they, 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 these were people who were then going to go and serve on the Dulos. And they did that. And the Dulos went and, oh, they've reached so thousands what and did thousands. So how long were you in Holland total on that first trip? About five months. And that put the foundation of my Christian life. What did uh, missions look like on that trip? What what were you doing? We did We would go out to these very posh houses in Bosna and do evangelism, um, and uh, there was a lot of every morning there were these two-hour prayer meetings for the ship, but mm -hmm. also like for India, and they would tell about all the going on India. I remember praying for praying for different places. Then once we went down to Switzerland to take church meetings. Again, basically the focus was on the ship, but it was uh, Operation Mobilization believed in evangelizing the whole. World. Did you ever pray for Iran or Afghanistan in those meetings? Probably, yeah, yeah. So after five months in Holland, what did born again Tom Hawks do? Did you <laughs> cut your hair and stop smoking? <laughs> and tuck in your language. <laughs> yeah, the language sorted itself out pretty quickly. Praise God. The smoking, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, then I, I became a normal. I, I, I became. A, I was a committed Christian. So did you go to university after? Then that? I went to university as a committed Christian. Yeah, yeah. and then I. Um, that's what, again. But again, there was mission there in the church with with people. I led the CU, and um, yeah, uh, there was a guy called Michael Green. He's recently died, but he was a great evangelist. So you would we'd invite people to the church meetings and. People coming, to, uh, you know, uh, in, in the missions. So the foundation of your faith was rooted in missions. It was. It was. I became a Christian with a mission organization. That's why I always believed that God had put his hand on me to be involved in Christian mission abroad. So all our listeners know this is about Iran and the Farsi-speaking world. How did you first get connected with Iranians, Afghans, Persian people? Uh so I was not planning to go to Iran or Pakistan or the East at all. After university, I went and worked with homeless people. And then I wanted to rejoin Operation Mobilization, which works in 88 countries. And the guy I'd been with in Vasana, his name was Frank Dietz. Frank you were Dietz. really good with names. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Frank Dietz it was like, uh, was like an, a Christian version of uh, John Wayne. Uh, you're okay. so young, you won't have heard of John no, Wayne. I know oh, John you're Wayne. Okay with John Wayne? Okay, okay. <laughs> so, you know, John Wayne, he was a no, you know, we're not messing around. It's let's mobilize, let's do something here. His name was Frank Dietz, and he was the leader of the Dulos. You know, it was a massive operation. And he had been stayed in contact with me, and he wanted me to come and do lineup work. Lineup work was when a team went ahead of the ship and did all the logistics for the arrival of the ship in the next port. So, it was an important job, and it, it appealed to me. So, I joined. Rejoined OM, 
I was going to work with Frank Dietz on the Dulos. Did the you Dulai have Network. to raise support or anything yeah. like this? How yeah. difficult was that raising support in the UK? Um, wasn't easy. I can't remember what I did now. So maybe somebody must have given me some money, but not much. Because um, a lot of our listeners who think of missions will be familiar with you go on a mission, you raise support, right. you go on mission. Well, OM, they were, in those days, they were a bit more flexible. Okay. Uh, so basically, you could turn up as long as you had a bit of money with you, uh, you they would take you on. So when I first went to Vossen, I had no support at all. They still took me on. They're yeah. a very gracious organization, and they never talked about money. So you went on this ship? Well, I didn't go on the ship. You no, didn't go no, on the ship? No, no. I arrived at the conference fully committed to going on the ship. Oh, okay. And this conference was in Belgium, and there were about 800 other people there. And OM said that, okay, you think you, you have your first choice, but you must have a second choice. So I thought, okay, what should my second choice? You have to go and l listen to another presentation. So I went to um, the presentation on Pakistan. I don't know why. And I'm sitting there listening there. And this strange piece comes into my heart about going to Pakistan. And which is weird because Pakistan's a very hot country, very hot food, life, living conditions would be a bit primitive. Um, but I have this strange piece. So now I've got a battle going on because I'm thinking, well, this, why is this? I can't shake this thing off that maybe I should go to Pakistan because everything, I had letters, everything was committed for, for Frank Dietz. So one after, then the, the people from the ship, they come and say, Hawksley, uh, we need to know like by tomorrow. So I'm thinking, whoa, I've got to let them know, go or not to go. So does God speak or not? <laughs> this is, you, you, we come to some moments in our life where, you know, either God speaks or he doesn't speak. If he doesn't speak, we're in trouble. So I went out in the afternoon and I was, I was meditating through the book of Matthew. Uh, in those days, and um, I, I said to God, I said, God, you, I, I need to hear because the ship is in South America and Pakistan. Say, you know, we can't fudge these two together. It's one or the other. So I said, please speak to me. So the verse for that day was, I think, I think it's Matthew six thirty something thirty two. Maybe it says, um, "Your treasure is where your heart is." Or your heart is where your treasure is. There's treasure and heart are together. So I meditated on that and I took that because I really pleaded with God to speak to me. I took that as being that I should follow my heart on this. And my heart was with Pakistan. And you'd not really thought of it until... Not at all. Not at mm. all. Not at all. So I want to just pause a moment there. So you've been a Christian for a few years, four or five years yep. at this time. Were you just always because of the way you gave your heart to Christ and where you were, you were just always convinced that we need to go on mission and share the gospel and yes. evangelize and disciple. Did I, you ever struggle with that? Uh, not then. I believed it was the most important thing that a Christian could do was, was to share the good news of, of Christ with everybody. And therefore, since England and Europe and America were absolutely stuffed full of churches in every street corner, especially Oxford, where mm -hmm. I was, uh, we had a, absolute responsibility to get out to countries and to be in places where there was no church and to to preach christ to people who hadn't heard yeah i i believe that with all my heart and that's why um did your family ever try and tell you tom come on settle down a bit oh yeah my mother was was very worried about it. my father thought i'd join the moonies yeah you know <laughs> uh and um so you've traveled around europe a little bit 
And now you go to Pakistan. By road. You went by road. We drove. Yeah. You and a few other people with About operations. Yeah. From England. Yeah, we went out in Ford Transits. And the Operation big yeah. Mobilization, yeah. 20 of you. We drove from Zarvan to Belgium. And what was the plan when you got to Pakistan? I didn't know. I had no idea. I would, I would just join the OM team there and it would be evangelism, which it was. And did you have a one-way ticket? Did you know when you were coming back? It was a two-year it was a two-year two year program. Oh, two years. Yeah, it's a two-year program. A Did you know the mission. language? No. But, but you know, they, some in Pakistan, there's a bit more English spoken. Than so f- for those of people who are familiar with Pakistan, I know a, a little bit. Had the kind of, the people from India, had all the Muslims had gone back to Pakistan, had that whole thing happened? Where was Pakistan as a nation in regards to India and things like that? Oh, I know. India were the, were the enemies. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, they'd had a couple of wars with them. I mean, but you'd, when you got to Pakistan, you just basically felt it was a very backward country. Very, well, most people... Poor. I had never seen poverty like that. You'd never before. seen poverty no, like that. No. And were most people Hindu, Muslim... And no, they're all Muslim. They're oh, all they're Muslim, all Muslim but, Pakistan. Yeah. They're all Muslim. There are a few yeah. Hindu tribes in the, yeah. in, in the Sindh Desert. But uh, no, no, they're all they're all Sunni Muslims. And so the first thing that struck you was the poverty. Well, actually, that's um, there is poverty, but I, I sort of it wasn't. The first thing that struck me actually was um, it's it's very difficult to describe when you go to the east. There's just something about the east. Actually, I was struck in Pakistan by the sort of hangover of British colonialism, yeah. and their buildings and the way they did things, and they were very. In a way, quite an easygoing uh, people, and it was poor, but it wasn't. Um, it wasn't desperately. There were desperately poor places, but it, it was. Um, it was just very, very different. Well, your first mission, what you said, was in very posh areas. Yeah. yeah. So, how was evangelism? How is that different in the very poor areas versus where you started? That must have been a very different... Was it, it was a different experience or was it... Completely different experience. Completely different experience. So in Pakistan, I, I was sent to the city of Karachi and we would go out to the rich areas and the poor areas, but usually the poor areas and we'd have a rucksack full of gospel packets. Uh, so we'd have gospel in them and then a few tracts and things like that. We'd actually also sell. We had to live off our book selling. So we were quite motivated to try and sell our, our different books that we had. And we'd go from shop to shop to shop. And it was just, it was, it was very, very different. So you, in, you were selling Christian literature. Yeah, selling Christian literature for for a few rupees, and then we'd come back, and that, that would be our lunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Owen paid, I think, our rent, but we were meant to live off our book sales. What? What? Looking back on, did so you spent two years in Pakistan, or did you end up staying longer? I stayed then longer because I fell in love with my wife Mujda there, which brings well, us to the Iranian there. story. So Mujda. For those of you who have not listened to our women's series, Mujda is the first lady. We talked to on our women's series and she has done amazing work uh, with the Iranian church. And she went to Pakistan after the Iranian revolution to study. To study as a medical student. And you met her there. At the at the at the fellowship. So there was a Christian fellowship fellowship and you met each other. Did she speak English? Yes. Yes, it's better now, but yes. So you... So you fell in love with her quickly, or what happened? Oh, I fell in love with her the first night. I mean, I, you I did. Mean, but she, I mean, she didn't know because we, uh, in our Operation Mobilization, uh, there's a very strict policy, which is you can. There's no dating. Or, the romance is totally illegal for the first year. 
After the first year, you have to get permission from your team leader, and then he will tell you uh, if you can go ahead or you can't go ahead. So for the first year, it wasn't. But 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 what happened was the, I arrived in Karachi, and there was a New Year's get together for this youth group. So I went along, and I'm I'm in this room, you know, maybe thirty people there, everybody chatting, and I feel this presence come to this room, and I'm just thinking, who's this? Who, who what's going on here? And I see her, and she's always talking to other people, and I'm thinking. <laughs> You know, and there she is, and uh, just just something about her which is just super attractive and gentle and everything like that. And at the end, I just say, uh, hello, I'm Tom, and she says, hello, I'm Wished. I walk out into in, into the night, and I'm in love. So what to do, you know? Wow. And, uh, but I can't do anything about it. But I keep on seeing her at the fellowship thing. And I so what, what does... It... I, I can't say anything to anybody. I'm interested in that I got engaged my first year as a Christian, so I would have been kicked out of Operation Mobilization oh, yeah, from day one. Yeah, so done, yeah. so what's your prayer like? You're on mission in Pakistan. You meet this Persian lady. You fall instantly in love. What? You can't do anything about it. So what do you, what do you pray about? You, you just, you just uh, a few little secret prayers, if she's the one, whatever. I don't know. You just park it. I so, literally just had to park it. So what happened after a year? Uh, then after a year, um, you know, sometimes we would sort of have ch- little chats. And then obviously, you know, the other guys who I'm living with, you know, it's obvious, you know, for them, they, it, wasn't, it was a complete no-brainer. You know, Tom is head over in heels in love with this, this mush there, you know. But uh, I thought I was really controlling myself well. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was written all over you. Huh? It was that? written all over you. Apparently it was written all over me, yeah. <laughs> Uh, after a year, I got permission. I talked to my team leader. His name is Mike Wakeley, a lovely guy. And he um, he was very excited for me. And he said, he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, uh, Mojde is from Shiraz. And uh, a friend of mine, Andrew Coleman, from school, his father, Dr. John Coleman, had been a very well-known missionary doctor in Shiraz. So <clears throat> when... Um, Mike had given permission. I thought, let, let me ask Andrew Coleman, you know, what, what's it like? Are British people and English people, oh, sorry, British people and Iranian people, do they get on? Let me just do a little bit of background research here. So I wrote to Andrew Coleman asking that question, you know, can Brits and Iranians get on all right? And Dr. John Coleman, who for me was a huge hero because he'd been imprisoned at the time of the revolution and he was all over the newspapers in England, a little bit like Terry Waite. In actual fact, Terry Waite got John Coleman out of prison. So for me, he was this very, you know, and he wrote back to me. Yeah. So I was, oh, whoa. And he wrote to me and said, oh, dear Tom, we know who you've fallen in love with. You've fallen in love with Mujde. We've been praying that this would happen because he knew Mujde from Shiraz. Wow. So this was a major encouragement to me. That so when all this is going on, had Mujde fallen in love with this British missionary? Better ask her. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever think when, when God put Pakistan in your heart that it may have been... For Mujda? No. Well, now I do, with yeah. hindsight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because your heart is where your treasure is. Your treasure. Because there's is mission to do is... everywhere, but when... The, yeah, 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 yeah no, that no, pool. definitely. My, that, that afternoon with, with that verse from Matthew, to, you know, it's totally changed. It, my life would be completely different. I wouldn't be sitting here now. If I so how long was it before you and Mujda finally got married or engaged? And when did you go to Iran for the first time to meet her family? Well, it took a bit of a while for us to, you know, get what's called social permission, and we started seeing each other. Yeah. And then I, on the first um, 
first or second meeting, I just because she might have heard different things about Westerners. I said, I said, I said, I was very shy about it, very, very shy. But I said, you know, the reason why we're meeting here is because the end destination is marriage. I just wanted yeah. to. I sort of, sort of, I felt like the earth swallowing up. I mean, I, you know, That's a big statement. Second meeting. It was quite a heavy statement, but yeah. I, I thought I should say it. So. Very intense. That yeah. kind of Christian missionary. Only date to get a wife. But that's, that's the right thing, isn't it, Joe? It's so intense. You, believe, you don't believe in dating, do you? Dating do I not, believe in dating? And not marrying? Well, I, be, I, believe you date be with, I, believe, <laughs> I believe you date with the intent to marry. It's just so intense. Is, is this the one God has chosen me to? There's a lot of pressure in that. Yeah, there is a lot of pressure in that. But at least you know that that's, that, that's the, the idea. Yes. That's the end game. Okay, so keep going Anyways, with the story. So it's phenomenal. discussion about dating. Great dating story. Right? Keep, keep yeah, it going. So, what did she say? Yeah, well, she just sat there a bit shyly, and I think she she, she agreed. So we, we were on the same page there. Yeah. Then uh, we did get in, well, we had a we um, we we ran into some traffic, which I won't go into. But um, I uh, I saw the parents coming back because then I went back to England, then came back overland, and I I got off at Shiraz because you go through. Iran. What was it like for you as a Britishman going to Iran at that time? The I'm guessing it's. Three, four, five years after the revolution, so it's yeah. in the middle of the Iran-Iraq war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, you went, were, it was easy for you to go in, into no, Iran. You, well, you could get a transit visa, and I just basically uh, the journey takes you sort of north of Shiraz, and I said goodbye to the people who were driving back, and I went down and saw much those parents in uh, Shiraz. It was, it was. You, you didn't see many other foreigners. Uh, no, not at all. So and when you felt that the country was at war, there, there was you could feel the tension in Iran. Definitely. When you fell in love with Mujda, did you know you were gonna? Did Iran become your mission, the Persian people, or? No, not straight away. Yeah. Um, but um, I liked Iran because I've driven through it twice, and I, when I saw her parents and saw Shiraz, I liked it. But what really brought me onto Iran, of course. It, it was Mojde, but when we were doing evangelism in Karachi, uh, this is now 19, say like 82 to 84, uh, we noticed we would be going to all the streets, lots of Pakistanis. The Pakistanis weren't that open. They were certainly yeah. Muslims. They weren't that interested. But the Iranians, the refugees uh, coming over to not go to the war, they were very open and they would take... And so I said, as the OM leader in Karachi, I said, we need to get more Persian New Testaments. Right. We need to give it. So then we actually started a work amongst Iranians. And then Mujde would come along and I would preach and Mujde would translate into Persian. So it was, uh, it was because we got something going amongst Iranians in Karachi. And is that where you first started learning Farsi? And that's where I first started learning Farsi. When I came back to Karachi knowing that I was uh, going to marry Mojde, I took, again, the Lord spoke to me through a very weird verse. You know that verse in Luke chapter 1, Elizabeth hid herself for five months when mm -hmm. she gets pregnant. Mm -hmm. I read that, I can still remember when I was reading it in the morning, I thought, Tom, five months, go and hide yourself. Just cut yourself off from all English speakers and go and hide yourself and, and try and get on top of this language. So I went and did that. Mm -hmm. I went and lived in an area of Karachi in a very, very small room. I mean, like, 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 you know, it's very small. You have to, I, we're not on TV or anything, but it's very small. There was just basically room for, for, for a couple of beds, a desk, and it was very, very small. I paid um, like 30 pounds a month for it. There were no windows in it, but it was right in the middle of where all the Iranian refugees were. So I was able to go out and, and, and slowly learn Persian. Was it? Them. 
because you were so on fire for the Lord and mission, was it easier was it easy for you to obey that tug of the Holy Spirit or was that hard? It was hard, but it was you know that there's a hardness where you know there's gonna be sweetness. Mm. You knew it was gonna be worth it. And I just knew this, and it was hard because I was just completely uh, alone there, and it wasn't in a particularly easy place. But but then when you do obey, uh, interesting stuff happens, and, and a lot of interesting stuff happened. I, I look back at those years; it was it was hard, but I, I look back at those years with with gratefulness. Yeah, because, ever... because I got the language. That's what yeah. pinned the language down for me. And my life would have been super boring if I hadn't learned Persian. And and you, you you can ask anybody here if they're involved in the Iranian work and they haven't learned the language, you know, that they're missing out big time. I mean, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, my yeah. life is very interesting because I've, I've got some of the language. And just for our listeners who, this is the first episode you've listened to, Farsi and Persian are the same language. Yeah, they're interchangeable. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. Were you ever afraid being sort of like the only English guy in these all these different countries and kind of immersing yourself in these different cultures? I mean, did the people just kind of look at you funny when you walk because you're just so different? Sometimes, especially when, sometimes when we did evangelism in Pakistan towards the end of my time, there there was a lot of hostility, and you could sort of sense that. Uh, with the Iranians, no, in Karachi. But uh, always in the back of your mind, you knew that something could happen. Yeah, yeah. So you've learned Farsi. You marry Mujda. Are you a missionary to Iran? What does that look like? Go to Iran and live there and evangelize and disciple. What happens next? Uh, what happens next? Um, we we uh, are very involved in this fellowship in Karachi with the Iranians, and we have the ministry there. But then... Um, the UN office moved from Karachi up to another part of Pakistan, and it just felt that season was coming to an end. So we came back to the UK, and I thought I should get some more theological training. Mm-hmm. But then Mujde was pregnant with our daughter, and so we needed a home. So I just had to throw myself back into becoming a teacher in the UK, earning a living and um it was very difficult that was actually a very difficult time that you couldn't start thinking about going to iran because because um we weren't members of om then uh, om didn't uh, om had a policy that the, uh the, they were okay about me getting engaged to mojde they had a policy that of cross-cultural marriages were a no-no for them they they didn't want to have cross-cultural really? couples married uh, back then back then wow. so i left om I became a teacher in Karachi, but I was sort of under there. Uh, but but when I came back to the UK, I was I was no longer with OM, and um, so yeah, I I, I I taught. But then we, um, th- but we always, I always was hoping we'd maybe go to. We could, we knew we couldn't go to Iran. To to go to Iran would just, would, 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 I would stick out like a, a thought. I I explored some possibilities, but you could just feel it wasn't coming together going to Iran, and then. Um, I got involved with the Iranian Christian Fellowship in London, which Brother Sam Yegnazar yeah. was uh, leading, and had this idea of maybe going to Dubai uh, and starting something there. Like so this. I want to ask you here, because you've been on mission almost your whole adult life, kind mm-hmm. of university, but still doing a lot of Christian work. You go to Pakistan, you come back and live in England, married, you have a child, and you're a school teacher. Yes, 
Did you feel less of a Christian, like you weren't doing I the Lord's terrible, work? Joe. It was horrible. It was horrible. It was horrible. Not not in terms of being less than a, less as a Christian, but I, just, I can still remember being in this classroom with all these kids and looking out the window. I was in Croydon, looking out the window and, and just thinking, "What's going on? Well, why am I here? What am I doing here?" I just felt very. Did you not feel the same love for those students as you did for the people you were evangelizing in? It just, it just felt, it just didn't feel right. Yeah. Uh, and that was, you know, I think it's normal when you've, you've been very, uh, very yeah. intensely involved mm-hmm. in one thing, which I was, and then you come back and nobody knows what you, and nobody's interested. Actually, nobody at all is interested. You know, you've been in Timbuktu, you've been in Russia, you've been in Pakistan, you've been abroad, boom. We're interested in what's going to happen here in Croydon. And it was just, um, it was just another world for both of us. I think what, it was a difficult time. What does missions look like then as a couple with kids? Because I, I do think it it you know keeps you in one place and there's some stability changes and such an important question. Uh, actually, it completely changed it uh, because the idea of going to Dubai or going here or going there, we've got a child and we had another child. They need to have an education. They need to have roots. Is it right to just drag them around the world from one place to another place? And um, I th- I think it just changed it completely, and and I th- wish they needed a home. She she needed it. so it was completely. When I went first joined OM, um, first went to Pakistan, I, the only things I owned were in my rucksack. That was it. Mm. I could have gone anywhere. You know, I was I was a bachelor. And I was completely free. But but when we came back to England, it wasn't that situation at all. So I think it does change. It, 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 it and you have to put you have to put your family first. And you can't, you know, even if you said uh, to, uh, to, if I'd said to Mushita, well, look, you knew that I was the, you know, you knew I wanted to do this, this and this. Whatever she knew, it doesn't make any difference. I've married her and now we have to, I have to uh, listen to her needs and my children's needs. So what happened was we were thinking of going to Dubai. So I went and saw Sam, Yegnazar, my pastor, and said, Brother Sam, Mushita and I were thinking of going to Dubai to maybe start something amongst the Iranians. Um, will will the church support us? Maybe not financially, but at least, you know, give you a blessing. So Sam said, yes, yes, that's wonderful, that's wonderful. <laughs> but why don't you come work here? Work with us here in Elam. So Elam had started. El- this is 1993, Just started. Yeah. So very much the beginning. So there's Brother Sam, there's Brother Razor, there's Krish. Guy called Sam Solomon, Feridun Mokov, Armon Rushdie, his wife, Rima. Carmen. Ruben. That's about it. You know, we're less than twelve people. Oh, and I wasn't even there. So so uh, it was it was embryonic. And um I went back and talked to Mojde about that, and then Sam and Lynn came and saw us and it seemed just providential, you know, uh Sam was completely committed to not just reaching Iran, reaching the whole world. And if the world ran out, I'm sure he'd shoot a few rockets off to Mars <laughs> to try and evangelize up there. You know, he's a man with passion. So there was a lot of attraction, the idea of working with him. And also this guy in Pakistan, Mike Wakeley, who had sort of led me, he knew Sam as well. And, and there was that. So it just seemed providential. So 1994, August 1994, um, I left the school teaching and joined uh, Elam. So I want to ask you that as well, because Elam is a very small organization and not a lot of money. Did they pay you? Did you raise support? There was no money. Uh, no, no. The, uh, Sam, uh, uh, Sam 
did give us a salary. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, did you have to work other jobs as well to make uh, ends no, meet for your family? No, but it was it was very very difficult, especially yeah. from Wednesday. It's just that people are made differently, so I yeah. don't tend to worry about money that much. Um, uh, maybe that was the OM culture that I came from. Yeah. Um, Wednesday is different. And uh, so I think it was it was very very uh, those early days were very very difficult for her because we went down yeah it, it wasn't it wasn't easy but it was okay yeah. it was definitely okay. So I want to go through this next part pretty quick because I wanna I wanna really talk about what it means to go on mission. So you you start working with Elam. Mujde is working on the Bible translation. Right, yeah. You're working with training and. Teaching, uh, jack of um, bit of everything, bit of everything, anything that. And so, from 1994 until now, 2003, the church in Iran has grown phenomenally. Absolutely. 2023. Oh, sorry, 2023. Sorry. (laughs) Um, Have you been to Iran at all in that time? Yes. Oh, yes. You've been back into Iran. We used to go regularly back to Iran. And, and and Brother Sam and Brother Ray were very gracious. They'd let yeah. us go and have long summers there. Okay. Uh, so we were back there um, almost every other year, all through the 80s and and, uh, and the 90s. But you don't go anymore? All through the... We, we stopped going... I Last time I went was 2004. When Ahmadinejad came, then people were getting arrested and word came back that uh, Tom and Mujde, especially Mujde, shouldn't go anywhere near... Iran. They said it would be dangerous for us. Okay. But it wasn't before then, just because of the no, leadership. No, no. Okay. Before then, it it wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, because you already had the revolution. We had the revolution, but I mean, um, you know, Mujde is Iranian. I would just go and get my visa as as a husband. I would put yeah. down like teacher or something on that form. Um, you know, there's so much, always so much going on in Iran that I they they didn't really have time to worry about somebody like me, and I was only going to be there. You know, a month, a couple of months. So it was. We never had any problems at all. Uh, and then this this came back. Maybe now, even if I went, I wouldn't have a problem, but I might. So I want to get to some questions because you have this. Um, you came to the Lord and started following Him on a mission trip. There's not many people that went on a mission trip and got saved. <laughs> That's funny. And so you're like, your your DNA as a Christian is go and spread the gospel, evangelize, yes. disciple. Yes. Amazing story with Mujda in Pakistan. You come back to England, struggle living a regular life. Yeah, definitely. You've trained and taught probably thousands and thousands of Iranian people over the course of the last 20, 25 years. Hundreds, yeah. Hundreds? Yeah, I mean, you know, because okay. the, the Iranians who came to Sha- uh, yeah. Grenville, you know, it were small groups that came. So the, the as, as you train and teach Christians, mm. and do you tell them all, yep, you've got to go on mission, you've got to be completely surrendered? And what, how, what does mission look like to those people that you're teaching? What does the go look like for the people that you teach? Um, do you tell them, do as I did? No, I don't tell because to go to another country and all of that, it's just it's just a different um it's just not there in Iran. You know, there's not like an organization like OM or YWAM or something like that, you know, with offices in Iran mm-hmm. for them to go to. So it's 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 not there. And I think my own view of mission has has uh, maybe deepened. Um 
So, you know, we have go and tell at the end of Matthew, but in John's gospel, we have come and see. And um, both of both is both is mission, but uh, the go and tell is just one half of it. The other half is come and see. So tell, think, tell us a bit more about what that come and see means to you. We've, your life kind of shows us the go and tell. Yes. And I think for most Westerners, when we think of missions and we think of go, we think of something like that. So tell us a bit more about come and see. I think come and, come, come and see is, is, um, is, is that here's my life and come and see. So our, our life is attractive and people want to come and see what, what, what have we got. So, you know, it's, it's, it's there in John's gospel, which is very easy to see. You know, Jesus, that's what Jesus says to Andrew and his friends is, you know, what do you want? Come and see. So I think for, for especially now, uh, my, my number one concern is not so much that these people do evangelism because people do do evangelism, you know, that is sort of there. My number one concern is their own life. Uh, with Christ is is deepened, and the issues that come up, and that they are, that all of us. But but my concern for the people that I'm talking to is that they are resting in Christ, and that they are gonna they, they are gonna be around for the, the the long haul. You know, you can do the go and tell. People can go on a mission trip. They can do two weeks. They can dish out New Testaments and so of that. That's in one way that really is not hard to do. You can do that. The excitement of it is good. I've done that, been there. I'm not saying it's not important. I I love doing. I say I love doing evangelism. Not always, but I I feel inside my heart uh, that I'm I'm never going to graduate from evangelism. I think every Christian evangelist. I, I think I I don't know if you. I mean, I always like to have. I haven't got them here at the moment, but I like to have some little Gospels of John mm-hmm. in my pocket, and in the doesn't matter where you are. In the UK, I mean, maybe here I should. Be, I, I like to say, "Have you read the Gospel of John?" I feel I should do evangelism. So I, the go and tell, I'm absolutely on board with it. But the go and tell, giving somebody a Gospel of John, encouraging them to read the, at the supermarket or at the at the, at the gas station, super important. Every Christian should be doing that, absolutely, um, uh, bec- because we want to share the gospel. And God has told us to share the gospel. So we've got to be doing that. But the come and see is come and see how I'm living with my wife and my children, you know, in the day-to-day life. Also, uh, when, when you said that, it makes me think of foster care and bringing kids into your home Absolutely. and the mission that is, you know, it's not always. There are broken people, you know, that need that, need that, that influence to see, you know, what, what, is this fa- what is family like? Yeah. And what can family be like for people? So that just don't? a reminder, Jen has um, adopted. Can you tell us a little bit about Katie to remind our listeners? Yeah, so we adopted our daughter um, five years ago, and she was in foster care as a baby. Um, so we were foster parents, and um, that that for us, we can't go. We had three other kids. There's no going on this mission trip, and. You know, going to the Bahamas and 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 doing these different sort of things, which are great. And there's Bahamas such a sounds need. better than Pakistan for a mission. <laughs> it does, it does. Um, but for us, it was you know, we were specifically looking to foster girls. So we we wanted to be that family that we will you know as many girls that needs our home and needs our family, and until you know there's one that needs a forever home, but. To me, that that's missions. Absolutely, it, you know. But there's the both sides, right? There's there's both sides of it. I mean, um, we have a WhatsApp group with a, a home 
study home Bible group that we we have back in the UK. And uh, there's a lady there. Her name is Mara Lees, who's recently become a widow, and she's got uh, two sons. Um, one of them's very much into football, like Joe. He actually came over to the states. She, having become a widow, she's got two teenage boys or older teenage boys to look after. She has just done foster care. You know, we ask for prayer when we go on trips to Turkey and things like that. So she says we'll pray. But I, I remember in one WhatsApp message, I just wrote back. I said, total respect to you, Marilise. And I think I, was, I think I probably wrote, but I certainly felt this. What you are doing is much, much harder than what I'm every doing. Every day. You know, that's, that, that is mission. Yeah. You know, are you going to... You know, and, and so I, I think this, this come and see, it is in the home. And yeah. What would... Tom Hawksley today say to the teacher in Croydon who felt bad about being stuck in England as a teacher and not on mission, what would you say to him? I would say, um, you know, unless a door opens, I mean, the door opened for me, uh, dig in there, dig in there and shine in the school. Mm. Um, And uh, yeah. And, and this is this is where God has placed you. Shine where God has placed you. So you can say, you you can say, uh, come and see. And of course, you can support mission. You can pray for mission. But actually, you know, the world has changed a lot. England is no longer a Christian country. Uh, I can't talk for America, uh, but England is absolutely not a Christian country. And uh, all all of our neighbors, great Christians in England. Just I. I... I know, I know exactly what you're saying. Oh, yeah, but there beautiful are, there Christians are great, in England, great Christians in England, yeah. great tradition. But at the moment, our yep. country, there are you know, wherever you look, there are people who aren't. It's not just there aren't people who aren't Christians. There are loads, of course, people from overseas working in England. You know, when I say, "Have you read the Gospel of John?" People will often look at me completely blankly. Then I'll say, "Do you know what I'm talking about?" And then they'll look at me and not really. I say, "So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John." Sometimes then people begin to twig. This is something to do with the Bible. Still not. I say, so there were these four Gospels about Jesus. Now, when I say Jesus, <laughs> I'm, oh, right. I'm really hoping. Now, yeah. there was one guy, still the lights weren't going on upstairs when I said the name Jesus. So I looked at him. I said, have you heard of Jesus Christ? Then he felt embarrassed. Yes, 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 yes. So, so this is the Gospel. You know, we are surrounded by people in the UK probably here in America, probably here in this hotel, if you went up to them and said, have you read the Gospel of John? The vast majority will have said no. If you say, do you know, do you know the story in John chapter 11? The vast majority will say no. But, and this is why we have such a responsibility wherever we are, but they might have had COVID knocking on their door last year. Death is knocking on their door. They need to read that story. I am the resurrection and the life. Do people ever look at you like you have three heads when you come and sort of like come at them like that? Like, have you read John? I'm always the customer, so they've got to be nice to me. (laughs) Okay. I want to ask you because for you, your story is um, you were born into this, born again into this mission. That's right. And it's beautiful and I love it and I respect it. And I just see so much good that the Lord has done for it. There are many people that that is really hard for you. Like you mentioned before, every Christian can go and and share the gospel. And it's, it's you kind of said for you, it's harder to come and see and to stay and watch my life because you love going out and doing that. What would you say to many of our listeners 
who are n- they just get super nervous about sharing the gospel. Like what? That's hard for a lot of people, especially in the West, where like we see Iranians do this, where it's dangerous. They can give a gospel, uh, uh, a New Testament to the wrong person, or share the faith with the wrong person and get in trouble. It's not going to happen in the West yet. There's many people, good Christians who love the Lord, who the idea of going up to a stranger and sharing the gospel is nerve-wracking to them. Well, I mean, I think um, I think it is nerve-wracking. And so I don't go up, I personally don't go up to strangers. But, you know, if I'm going to buy something, if I'm waiting at the supermarket, th- this is where I do my Have You Read the Gospel of John? Or the Amazon guy comes to your door. So it's not... <laughs> You know, poor Amazon. <laughs> so you're not much of a door-to-door person. Go up to strangers. No. It's just part of your life. It's just it's, it's a part, and so I'm not going out of my way to do that. Though I think I, I've I'm, I've got plenty of time for that. I think I think that's a fantastic thing to. I just think it should be a part of our life. So imagine if every single Christian was just giving out the Gospel of John. To, you know, whenever it was a natural opportunity, wouldn't that be great? And I think we just have to overcome our nerves. I think one, one we, of the things I, I don't think we can just say, "Well, I'm nervous." I yeah. don't think that. One of the things that I've kind of just taken in my own life is as a as a new Christian in certain churches and some of the places I was trained and discipled, evangelism was something you went out to do, and I never vibed with that. Using a seventies, never vibed with that. I I kind of thought that even as a young Christian, not really understanding evangelism is should be a lifestyle, not an event that you go and do like but it seems like you've you've done because like operation mobilization it seems like we go and do evangelism we go into the streets we share the gospel but now what i'm hearing from you is your evangelism is just part of your lifestyle now it is yes i mean so talk uh, talk about that transition because i think a lot of people in the west when we think evangelist and we think evangelism, we think maybe we go out into the streets, maybe it's the crazy guy with the bullhorn, or you have to hand out a track, or you have to go door to door. What what does it mean to be an evangelist to you today in the Western world? Yeah, Iran yeah. is different. Yeah, yeah. Most, you know, but like for you... I, I think every Christian, uh, if they meet a non-Christian, you know, and make friends with non-Christians, which is a great thing to do, you know, I think every Christian just there's something inside them they they want to share their faith with them i don't, i don't think that can be that's not manip- that, that's that's just something natural i think that that we we want to share christ with with that person we want to somehow um yeah so in in terms of what it looks like as i say um uh i mean we have our neighbors we'll talk to them like that so with my neighbors i wouldn't just suddenly thrust them a gospel of john but but in the west we have fantastic opportunities we have easter Mm-hmm. You know, so an Easter card and the Gospel of John. So, Tom, when, when I think about evangelism or evangelist, all I picture is the man in my little town with the sign on the square. He is literally—you could throw a stone and hit four churches. But he's got the sign that says, if you don't believe, you're going to hell. And he's just very aggressive and very... And so it's just got this feel. It's like, is this really... Do I really want to do what this guy's doing, you know? <laughs> and, and But in the South, it is. You can go to, to a, a church anywhere, right? You can go 
South of America, south, south of the south US. Of, yeah, yep. south of the US. Farm it, country. Farm country. <laughs> it's not, everyone knows, you may not know the story of Jesus or John, but you know who Jesus is. So how is that, how is evangelism, what do you, what do you think about that, that fella in this sort of context versus in a different country where there's not all these churches and, you know, you see this person that maybe, maybe not the sign that says you're going to hell, but that is evangelism on the street. Like that feels like two different context um do you think that that does more good or more the, harm the, the billboard guy <laughs> billboard guy yeah i mean <laughs> it's it's i think i think we have to be careful because uh you know john the baptist uh who warned you to flee from the wrath to come you brood of vipers i mean he was quite quite like a billboard guy um so i i think we should i think we should be careful but i mean Thankfully, I. But that's never, from a Christian perspective. If you're not, if you're not a Christian, you're just. It, it, I don't think it's going to be particularly uh, helpful. But, um, the, the but, uh, we, um, the day of judgment. I I I don't think it's for us to say about who's going to go to hell or who's not going to go to hell. But you know, the the, the day of judgment is there in the scriptures. Uh, there is going to be a day of judgment, and uh, it might not be a particularly pleasant thing to talk about, but everybody is going to die, and everybody deep down in their heart knows that they're going to have to give an account of how they've lived their lives. That's why people make confessions on their deathbed. Um, uh, so, so we have to, I think as as, as Christians, I don't think we can just give the you know everything's going to be all right sort of stuff i think we have to somehow approach that subject so um if i think evangelism is best like you're saying in the home people come to the home and we talk and it spreads like that that's that's very very natural and i'll say you know have you read the gospel of john that's not particularly aggressive in the in, in the things but is there sometimes a space for for the for the billboard guy yeah maybe i don't know i mean <laughs> I would say in the American South, you know, or or in there are areas in England where you would just assume, I think you scratch the surface, you'll probably find there's actually, you know, pe people are, um, maybe they do need. What is evangelism? Evangelism isn't just giving out a gospel and saying bye bye. It's it's actually saying I I want to I want to have a relationship with you. So um, so evangelism is as a sort of I don't think we should just say it's a neat package. Basically, I think evangelism is saying. I'm available for other people. I think putting it really simply, I want to live my life so that I'm available for other people. So how that looks, you know, for you in your situation and Joe, and it, it, it's all different. But as Christians, we're about other people. I think that's, I think, yeah. th does that make sense? Yeah, I, I love that, that when we talk about evangelism, it comes in so many different forms. Yes, yeah, sometimes it looks like giving out a gospel on the street, relation, relationship evangelism, making friends, taking a child into your home and, and having them live with you. Come and see, go and tell in all different ways and God's made us all different, but we're all called to evangelize. And, and you've said that. What, what I want you to speak into now, Tom, because I really feel this in you and I see it on your life and I think it's really, really beautiful. When you evangelize, you are completely convinced that the message of Jesus Christ that you're given is the hope of the world. 
and it can help people. And you've seen it transform so many lives. I mean, the Iranian church, been so blessed to be involved in it these last few years and they evangelize. I mean, they go and they evangelize and they share and they give their lives to share and they do it in all different ways. Um, and I think there's many Christians in the West that are nervous about evangelism because they're not quite sure it's going to work. <laughs> and they're not quite sure, is this really the answer for these people? Mm. So I would love you to speak into why you have given your life to go or come and see. Or come and see. And why you're convinced that that's important. I th I think I sp I speak just as a very ordinary ordinary Christian, um, but nothing really can take the place of the sense of His presence in your life, the sense of His protection, um, His peace, His joy. I mean, we Christians have the best life, and I think so. That's why it's just it's just it should it is it is you just want other people. Uh, to ask Christ into their lives and to start walking with Him, and we feel pain, especially when our own family members uh, they're not they don't respond, and we, uh, there's the whole mystery of that. But we, but I think um, when somebody asks Christ into their life and they begin to change, and you begin to see a smile on their face, um, wow! I mean, you know, what what could be more precious than that? Of course, they're going to have other problems and other hassles and other issues. But it doesn't matter where we are in the world, this is the most beautiful thing that can happen to any human being, that they have an encounter with God in the face of Jesus Christ through the cross and the resurrection. That's, you know, it's, 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 it is, it's the most beautiful thing. It's, it, is, it, is the, it is the bottom line. So absolutely, yes, I, you know, I'm sure all of us, that's absolutely what we want to see. When, when we start making friends with people, and uh, yeah, it's just what we want to see happen. Well, what I, what I do want to say is I see that in the Iranian church is that people are serious about the gospel message and evangelism. And, and this series that we're talking about is, you know, what do we do with these stories? What can we do as Westerners? And I would love for these stories from the Iranian church where they evangelize, where it's illegal to evangelize mm. and you can get put in prison for this and they go out and the gospel is spreading and people are coming to Christ and they're having those encounters with Jesus and their life transforming. Yeah. What we what we typically do on, on Jesus Speaks Farsi at the end, we, you know, we ask you, is, is there anything our listeners can pray for you about? But we've got th literally thousands of listeners from all over the world. And you've seen evangelism in very real ways. You've seen go and tell. You've lived, come and see, because you're convinced of the power of the gospel. And I just feel like there's many people who listen to these stories. They're encouraged. They're blessed. Would you kind of just speak into that or even say a prayer of blessing, that, that fire, that hope of the gospel would almost be rekindled in, in their lives? Wow. <laughs> what a beautiful request. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I would pray for myself. I pray for uh, Jennifer. I pray for you. I pray for everybody listening. You know, when we wake up in the morning, we praise God that we're alive. 
And we praise God for our salvation. It's just such a precious thing. It's our salvation that we are safe. We're completely safe. And I don't think God is asking us to jump off cliffs, but I think every day we have opportunities to show that we're Christian in some way, and we have opportunities to share a word of testimony. We have opportunities, yeah, it might sound very basic, but why not? Why not go onto the internet and order some Gospels of John? And please pray for me that the Gospels of John that I pass on, it's just a seat, but you know the person who's giving you the receipt at the, at the gas station, you've no idea where they come from. In England, I don't you've not seen this, in England they're all from Pakistan or from the, uh, from the subcontinent. You very rarely see an English person. But they, don't, they haven't got the focus about Jesus Christ. And that is just saying the name of Jesus Christ has authority and it has power. We have the most beautiful name to share. So I pray for myself that we just, all of us, we're just a little bit more active in in sharing the gospel of Christ. We might not see uh, much happen, but down the line you'll see. You know, I walked into McDonald's, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, got a McDonald's and the girl there, I said, have you read the gospel of John? And she said, no, I gave her the gospel of John. She happened to be Iranian. So I now know her name is Toktam. She's come to faith. That was her first Christian contact. Oh, wow. And she's engaged in the church. So usually, usually uh, we have no idea what happens to the seed that we sow. But we sow the seed, God does something. So I just encourage, I'd encourage us all. You know, it actually does us good. When, when we share something, when we give, we, we just feel a little bit of a spring in our step that we've done something which we get nothing out of. We get, you know, really. So anyway, that would, I don't know if that's really what you're asking for. That's Joe, great. Yeah. And I'll finish by just reminding our listeners that the gospel is really good news. Jesus offers life, forgiveness, love, grace to all people. And um, he's called us to go out and share that good news. So we encourage you to do that. Thank you, Tom, for yeah. being with us. This has been a blessing to me, Jen. Thanks, yep, thanks. for all your questions thanks, and Tom. for being with us again. And uh, we will see you on the next episode of Jesus Speaks Farsi. We've had Pray, Give, Go. And the next episode is going to be Stay. What does it look like to stay and build the kingdom of God with Iranian men and women, with Afghans, but also with our own neighbors in our own community. Tom, thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Tom today. His wisdom and humor always makes for an interesting conversation. And his thoughts on what it means to go and tell as well as come and see are something I'll be thinking on for a while. Next time, we hope you'll join us again for our conversation with Neil and Celeste Rogers, a couple who've been connected to the Iranian church for the last several years. Neil is a missions pastor at a church in Midland, Texas, and is a compelling teacher who's a vocal advocate on behalf of the church in the Persian-speaking Middle East. I know you'll enjoy hearing Neil and Celeste and be encouraged by their insight into what it can look like when God calls you to stay. Until then, we hope you encounter Jesus in a real way this week through your prayers, your giving, your going, and your staying. Be blessed. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, would you take a moment to subscribe to our podcast or leave us a rating, a review? We love for more people to learn what Jesus is doing amongst Farsi speakers today. 
Jesus Speaks Farsi is produced by Elam Ministries, a nonprofit ministry whose mission is to strengthen and expand the church in the Iran region and beyond. For more information, resources, and ways to partner, visit elam.com. Thank you.